Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. I can tell you everything about Main Man. Why and what and how and whether it was exciting or not. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. A very long, wonderful adventure. Hello and welcome to episode 25 in our series exploring the history of the management rights company Main Man, which was renowned in the 70s for transforming the business of rock and roll. While allowing Main Man acts to explore their creative freedom, the company pioneered promotion and marketing techniques that became synonymous with the decadence, extravagance and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore. Of course, Tony, his idea was that he wanted to make this session as expensive as possible so that he would lock RCA into committing to David. Main Man worked with a very diverse range of clients that included Lou Reed, Amanda Lear, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Dana Gillespie, Mick Ralphs, Mott the Hoople, Iggy Pop and David Bowie. David Bowie never wore a garter belt. He did wear girls' high heels shoes at times, but, you know, platforms, and he would nick a belt, but they weren't like frilly dresses. Never, ever drag. It was always in form. In this episode, Tony DeFries explains how one of the world's most acclaimed composers began his stellar career with Main Man. Michael Kamen is famous for, among other things, composing the music for the Lethal Weapon series of films, the first three Die Hard movies, X-Men, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Bond's License to Kill, there's dozens of them. Plus, he's worked with acts like Pink Floyd, Metallica, Queen, Aerosmith, Eurythmics, Coldplay, Eric Clapton, it's an endless list. But he began his illustrious rock career in New York in the late 60s and hooked up with DeFries and Bowie in 1974, as Tony now explains. When Michael Kamen died in 2003, I lost a very good friend. Michael was one of those few musicians and performers, but essentially a composer-musician, who was willing and happy working with many, many different people from different branches of music. And he was really very, very well-liked. He is, or he was, one of what Kayam described as those best beloveds who one by one crept silently to rest. That is Michael. How did I come to meet Michael Kamen? That takes us a little back in time to what happened before the creation of a theatrical rock extravaganza called Diamond Dogs and the album that was recorded before the theatrical show and a show that changed the way much of rock performances and much of musical events later coming in the form of award shows and stage shows and other elements were dealt with and addressed. Diamond Dogs, the album, was created to provide a platform for the conquest of America, which so far had eluded Bowie. He wasn't able to get the same kind of attention and enthusiasm 
and fan frenzy in America that he got in the UK. As a result, he didn't sell enough records to generate significant revenue in the US. And this needed to be overcome. This was a problem for RCA, albeit they were making substantial rewards from David in the UK. The real and important market was always America. What was missing was the right instrument and platform. Ziggy has certainly created attention and created a lot of critical musical commentary and we were able to take all of that and turn it into a massive advertising. Some people have called it the most presumptuous advertising program ever mounted for a single rock performer, especially one who was still comparatively unknown. It got us an enormous amount of attention and it did lay the groundwork for David's next US tour. I was unwilling to step back from the headliner position I'd established for David in the US on his first round of relatively small audience personal appearances. Those small audiences, although they eventually became thousands, were not arena audiences. We needed to go bigger. Colonel Parker was once told by his mentor when he was still in the circus business, which he was in actually, that the way to get attention is go bigger than everybody. Literally, if you want to succeed, be bigger than everybody. That stayed with Parker, and when he started working with Elvis, he realized, okay, I need to be bigger than everybody. So taking that to heart, I had started working with David in 1973, after we retired Ziggy, as to how we would overcome this American elephant, how to ride it to a successful outcome, how to literally perch David on top of the elephant and make it stampede into stardom. Now, how do you do that? Well, first of all, you need to tell a very big, glamorous story. You need a very colourful album to support it. Diamond Dogs was just such an album, had a story, had characters, had a wonderful piece of artwork, by Guy Pallard. It conjured up the idea of a future society. Where did that come from? Well, David Ziggy was an alien creature from out of space, maybe the Messiah, maybe just a future astronaut from a future time, maybe an astronaut from another civilization reaching out to us. It was left very actually vague. <laughs> One of the great tricks about making a myth is that you give it a lot of room to, shall we say, morph or change or fill another role. So all the best myths have mythological characters who can change 
shapeshifters, if you like. So here's Ziggy the shapeshifter. He's going to turn into a diamond dog. Now, originally, David and I discussed two possible platforms for this sort of exercise. One of them was George Orwell's 1984, which had many of the ingredients of a future society that was now in despair and collapse and decay because of a autocratic and overwhelming control system. We started working on that. Ingracia and David started working through a possible play that could be musically performed, so a dramatic musical work, if you like, with what they had, with with the songs that had already been, if not recorded, at least identified. The problem was that Orwell's estate were unwilling to give us permission to use that material. And it would have been difficult to take that story, which is very, very well known, and retell it in a way that didn't indicate that it was our platform. The other possibility was a black and white, I think originally silent movie that had been made in the early 20th century called Metropolis by a German director called Fritz Lang. And this, although it was about a society in which people become robots and robots control people and it's entirely mechanistic ultimately, and of course there are some humans who want to escape from this and there's a romance and so on, it wasn't quite what we wanted But it did give us a possibility to say, okay, if we don't use that story, but we use some elements from it, and we rewrite the story so that it becomes something different. When David first encountered Iggy Pop, it was because he was played a radio station recording. Strictly speaking, it was a recording that the radio station had received and hadn't probably hadn't previously played. But one of the people accompanying David on his original one-on-one personal appearance tour in 1971 had actually played him a song by Iggy called I Want to Be Your Dog. And Iggy often performed on stage by crawling about and barking and doing other things, believe it or not, just like a dog, which got him a lot of attention. A lot of people actually like that. So... Here we have the possibility of using that dog as the beginning of something else. And this is how we perceive diamond dogs to become. And we spent many hours with David jumping in and out of chests to demonstrate how he was going to need things to appear from on stage or drawing, which he was quite good at drawing. He was an illustrator, remember, to begin with. So he would draw these little sketches of, look, if I had a bridge. And again, all of this comes from the fact that in 1973, when we were on our US tour, we got an opportunity, which we had done a lot of work to persuade NBC and RCA to let us do this. But David became the first person as a rock star, the first rock star, 
to ever play Radio City Music Hall in New York. And that was a great experience because Radio City Music Hall had a full set of theatrical effects. It had moving stages, it had effectively individual items that could be lowered and raised from the very top of the amphitheatre all the way down and even over the audience. So David, when he did that, which was February, it was actually a Valentine's Day set that we extended for a few days, went through the possibilities of what would work for him at that time. And although he was often not comfortable with being on heights, he decided that one of the effects he'd like to use was a catapult that could come out over the audience, at least the first few rows, and a bridge. And these two things were available, along with moving stages, but this was still the era of Ziggy, so the band was still relatively small, just the Spiders, possibly a few other musicians, and David was still the centre of attention. And so what he did was add costume changes, lighting, because we had much better lighting, obviously, at Radio City than we'd normally have in a larger venue or a venue that wasn't designed for theatrical use. This was clearly a fully theatrical venue and a very good one, one of the best in America, actually. So he got to do a fabulous, fabulous show. And part of that show was this idea of descending either on a bridge or on a single globe-like structure from, if you like, the theatrical heavens and hanging out over the audience where they were almost able but not quite able to touch him. So they felt they could touch him. They felt that he was embracing them, that he was right there for them and singing songs like Space Oddity, which, of course, tutored that whole part of his show perfectly. So now David had an inspiration for how we might make towers and a bridge that could be set up and dismantled and moved from one venue to another and actually made large enough to make a difference in a in an arena. And even though we did make them eventually very large, you have to realise that in a an arena of any size, it's only the first twenty rows or so that can actually see what's going on on stage. Everybody else is just peering down at what looks like a little mini set. You can see what our little model set looked like to get the idea and real pictures of the real set when it was finally erected. But today, of course, you have the advantage of massive screens that you can put up so the audience can see what's going on. Remember, we didn't have that in the 1970s. So we had to make the audience believe they were seeing something really special even if they were half a mile away from the stage. Not easy. (laughs) And also, as RCA discovered, not cheap. So one day, when we were further along, I took a small cardboard box to RCA and I unveiled for them this little set, a little model set in a Perspex container, a working model set Another dear friend of mine, Jules Fisher, had designed for us to make 
the possibility of Diamond Dogs and Hunger City and all of the characters, especially Jack, the Diamond Jack, to become real for audiences all over America. So that's what we did. We're ready. Some of the biggest problems RCA faced with David were, on the one hand, there was a level of belief right up to the executive, which was Rocket Agonestra, who also a very nice chap, unfortunately died young, and people like Mel Elberman, who was the sort of head of business affairs then, and of course the A&R folk, headed up by Dennis Katz and various other people who were big Bowie fans. But the problem still resolved is, why doesn't American radio play him? Why doesn't American record audiences buy the records? Why is he not making the same impact here that he was in the UK and that he has continued to do in the UK? And because there had been such a good response to Aladdin saying they thought we can do it in America provided we have the right record. Of course, when they got Diamond Dogs, they were less than thrilled. First of all, the artwork had to be immediately corrected because they had a, a dog with a huge phallus on the cover which nobody was happy about in America. And essentially record stores and record distributors just said no we're not going to put that in our store so we had to go a different way so despite David's uh, emotional concerns we airbrushed out the offending object and moved on a defallous dog but still clearly a dog the cover has a very nice element to it because the cover, in a sense, almost creates a carnival atmosphere. You've got this, these two panels on either side of the dog and they're advertising, obviously, other canine women, if you like. Um, so there's a whole sort of, almost like you're going to the circus atmosphere attached to the album, which I don't think people at RCA really got. I mean, for them, it was just weird <laughs> so anyway on my journey through the RCA era I discovered that if you could persuade them of the most extreme situation however unlikely it was their willingness if you like or their desire to somehow make it work overwhelmed their objections because they really didn't have any idea how to promote David so in a way they were always hoping that I would do that for them that I would make that work and since I had done and it had been spectacularly successful in a very short time really if they could sell the sort of proportion of recordings in America that they were selling in the UK everything would be wonderful so all I had to do was persuade them that we had a way to make it all wonderful, that retiring Ziggy was really a good idea. Look how well it helped to sell the follow-up albums. And how could we sell this one in America? And so I unveiled my little model. And I explained to them that these towers were going to be 40 foot high. They were going to be 
enormous. They were going to be on stage. They'd be flat-packed so they could be moved from one venue to another. But in order to meet the audience demand and the demand for venues, we'd have to be prepared to have at least three complete sets because one of them would have to be on stage for a performance and would take largely a full day to set up and operate and would then be available for one or two performances on that stage. But another one would have to be set up in the next venue so that it could be ready before we arrived to do sound checks and lighting checks and other checks and then put on the same two or three shows or even four shows in that venue, which means we'd need yet another one to move on to the next venue since the one that we had used in venue one would be dismantled and moved to the next venue. So we needed three sets. Uh, the great question, of course, was um, how much will that cost? The answer was $600,000, which I suggested they forward us in the form of a royalty-secured loan and that they participate in whatever revenues come out of the travelling rock show. If they exceed the costs of putting it on, they would have essentially the right to recover money from that exercise. And because they really didn't know what else to do, they gave us the money and a green light to go ahead and get to it. So what happens next? Well, next we have clearly a need for a lot more musicians as well as dancers and performers to make this work. We have to have some characters. We have to have some set pieces. And we need, as well as our moving bridge and our wonderful globe that comes out over the audience, we also need a very large mechanised hand that will roll out onto the stage. And when it opens, which it will do slowly, down the staircase, down the thumb. So inside the thumb, which is gigantic, there's a staircase. Inside the hand, there's a small curled up sleeping figure, of course, David, who as the hand opens is seen. And then as the thumb touches the floor, he gets up and walks down the thumb and begins to sing. Lovely effect, really marvellous. From time to time, especially at Madison Square Garden, the um, Chrysler chassis on which the hand was mounted so that it could roll onto the stage under its own power would not function for whatever reason. There were many. And it had to be hand pushed onto the stage. So then we had a group of stagehands in ninja outfits so they wouldn't be visible to the audience <laughs> pushing it on stage with David inside and hoping for the best it usually worked as long as everyone was in sync it worked and it was a great effect the bridge was a marvellous effect it, again in rehearsals it often got stuck or worse yet it dropped precipitously to the ground so we had to put a brake on that so it could be controlled independently and we did that. So there were all these kinds of uh, issues and problems. 
But when you're doing something that's never been done before, you're bound to encounter those kind of problems. The important thing was, could we get the lights, the music and the effects to operate so smoothly that the audience would be fully engaged and the effect would not be lost. And that took a good deal of rehearsal, which we did in a theatre that we hired for the purpose in New Jersey. The Capitol Theatre in Port Chester, New Jersey, became the scene of many successes, many failures, a good deal of um, hysterics. And ultimately, just before we went off to Toronto to do the opening show, a fully, finally working, rehearsed set and set list, Diamond Docks. The curtain could lift, as it did in Toronto. The fans loved it. The press didn't really know what to make of it, except that they'd never seen anything like it, so it was clearly something new and impressive. So they wrote about it. And, of course, we had eclipsed Ziggy. We'd returned bigger and better than Ziggy ever was. And one of the key elements of this was having music. I knew when we started to do this that David would not be able to manage with the normal four-piece or five-piece band, that he would need a lot more. And to do that, just as we had theatrical designers and theatrical lighting from people like Jules and I think Robin Wagner was another one and all the other people who were engaged in this, they were all theatrical and film professionals. They came from that theatrical film business. We needed somebody who had that kind of background to come and be our musical director. And Michael, because he was ex Julian, he had done many, many different private ballets for different ballet companies. The Harkness was one of them. The Joffrey, I think, was another one. He understood how to make music and lighting and movement and sets work all together, which is not something that you can get from your average uh, session musician. He also was a multi-instrumentalist. He played piano, synthesizer, oboe, and pretty much anything you gave him, he would say, oh, this, you play this like this. I remember him showing me how to play some exotic African instruments at one point in time. Like, what does that do? Oh, well, you do this, and out comes this perfect note. He had that sort of skill, much like Mick Ronson, actually. And he was also very, very patient. He's a bit slow-moving. He rarely got bothered, bewitched, or upset by anybody or anything. He took things in his stride. He was often late for things, of course. Sometimes he was two or three days late for things in his later life, but I had that same sort of personality. I'm slow. I get to things in my own time. I tend not to rush, and I assume that things will wait for me even when they sometimes don't. But to be in charge, sometimes you have to make events move at your own pace. And clearly, there was no way to rush this preparation for this uh, Diamond Dogs tour. Because when you're doing something nobody's ever done before, you can't really say, 
I'll do it in three days or six days or five weeks. What you need to say is, it will be done when it's done and we'll know when it's done because we'll be able to feel, see and hear it. And until it's done, we don't really want to take it out on the road and hope for the best. So that motif became the driving force for everybody. And Michael was enormously helpful in making that work because he could organise and also introduce. I think he introduced a lot of the people who came on that, definitely David Sanborn, who was saxophone flute, and David Mansfield, who he introduced. But I don't know if he actually played on Diamond Dogs, but he was certainly in the space. And many of the others. So that we started off with Michael by giving him a lot of responsibility, and he managed it extremely well. And it's worth remembering that he died young, he died when he was 55, but at this point in time, Michael was only in his 20s. He was probably 26 or maybe 27, but in a way, I suppose we all were. I mean, we were all young then. So here he was, probably a similar age to David, um, not much difference, and a few years younger than me, but still completely aware and in charge and confident in what he was doing and that was really essential because without that we could not have made the rest of it work so in later years we i used michael for lots of different things and of course he became enormously successful as a film composer and as a conductor and as the person that everyone turned to even eventually, um, Queen Elizabeth said, if you want someone to organise the concert that's going to be played at the Queen's Garden Party, Michael got to be selected, and of course Queen got to play, which makes a lot of sense when you're playing for the Queen. You must have Queen as the band on board. <laughs> so we did get Diamond Dogs on the road, and albeit... It only lasted until it got to the West Coast, where we did our last performances at the Hollywood Bowl in California. It was an enormous success. Um, we sold lots of tickets. In many cases, we added matinee performances because there was so much demand for people to see the show after they'd heard about it that we literally had to add on matinees to existing two or three day runs. And I think we ended up with a last run of weeks at the Hollywood Bowl venue. And ultimately it paid for itself and it led to young Americans and at the very last moment, literally, the recording of Fame, which fulfilled everybody's expectations which Lennon and David wrote together with Carlos Alomar and with a little help from Luther Vandross and they all created a marvellous song about fame and that eventually fulfilled David's expectations mine and RCA's Tony DeFries, recalling how composer and conductor Michael Kamen worked with Main Man. In particular, his work as music director for David Bowie's Diamond Dogs Tour in 1974. 
there are some great pieces of rock memorabilia from Michael Kamen's Main Man years that are part of an ever-growing archive of Main Man documents, including telexes, articles, letters, production notes, contracts, a lot of them never seen before, that we're adding to the Main Man label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's all at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. In the next episode, DeFries continues recalling his relationship with Michael following on from the Diamond Dogs tour, including his work on the debut album from John Mellencamp in 1975. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening. <laughs>